Hi, I'm Len Epp, co-founder of LeanPub and host of our Front Matter podcast, where we publish long-form interviews with both best-selling and first-time self-published authors, as well as occasional expert special guests from the book publishing industry. Long-term listeners will probably be a bit surprised to hear me doing this intro, as we've always done a cold open, going all the way back to our first interview in 2012. The main reason I'm doing this intro is because I have an announcement to make about the podcast. We've decided that we'd like to start recording and publishing video versions of the podcast, and this is our very first episode where the video will be available for you to watch. So if you're interested in actually seeing me and the guests talking, head on over to our YouTube channel and subscribe and look for the Front Matter podcast playlist. I'm also excited to announce that we've uploaded all 235 previous episodes to our YouTube channel. It took a fair amount of grinding, but we got there. Of course, older episodes will just have a static image in the background, but not only does this mean we're on another channel, YouTube is great as it lets you leave comments and have conversations about the episodes, which is one of the reasons it's actually a very popular podcast channel, even for audio-only podcasts. I should note that while all new episodes will be published on YouTube going forward, in addition to Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and Spotify, etc., not all episodes will have video available for you to watch, just due to the ordinary, you know, accidents and exigencies of podcasting and people's home setups and what have you. I'd also like to note that while we usually don't really do any heavy editing of the audio-only version, we do do some production work to make it flow more smoothly and be a bit more polished. We're still learning how to get into the video podcast world, and one of the things about it, of course, is that you can't really do the same kind of audio editing with video interviews specifically, so we're going to go for the best of both worlds and still polish the audio up for our non-YouTube channels the way we always have in the past or at least have tried to do in the past. If this is your first time listening to the Front Matter podcast, I just thought I'd mention that LeanPub is a self-publishing platform for authors of books and online courses with the motto, Publish Early, Published Often, based on our lean publishing philosophy. While we love it when self-published authors show up with completed books they want to publish on LeanPub, we're pretty much the best platform in the world for publishing books while you're writing them. I should also mention that we pay an 80% royalty rate on every sale, and we don't have any restrictions on however or wherever else you'd like to self-publish and sell your book or books, unlike some other platforms I probably don't have to mention by name. If you're interested in writing and publishing your own book on LeanPub, you can sign up anytime at leanpub.com slash create slash book. It's free for people writing in our browser and upload writing modes, and there are affordable paid plans if you want to use our cloud writing mode that lets you write using GitHub or Dropbox, and if you want to unlock some pro features like using Google Analytics, the LeanPub API, and InDesign export. And lastly, I'd just like to say watch this space. We've got some more announcements coming about other new ways we're going to be working to bring more attention to LeanPub authors and help them get their books out there in front of a wider audience. To keep up with the latest developments, please follow Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at LeanPub, subscribe to our channel on YouTube, and sign up for our newsletters at leanpub.com newsletters. Okay, that's it. I hope you enjoy my interview with Simon Brown. Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the LeanPub Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Simon Brown. Based in Jersey, Simon is an independent software development consultant, popular speaker, creator of the C4 model for visualizing software architecture, and the founder of Structurizer, a set of tools that help software teams visualize, document, and explore their software architecture. You can follow him on Twitter at Simon Brown and check out his website at simonbrown.je. Simon is the author of the LeanPub books, Software Architecture for Developers, Technical Leadership, and The Balance with Agility, the C4 model for visualizing software architecture, and the Software Guidebook, a guide to documenting your software architecture. In this interview, we're going to talk about Simon's background and career, professional interests, his books, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience writing and self-publishing. So thank you very much, Simon, for being on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast. You are very welcome. Nice to meet you, finally. Yeah, you too. It's been a long time that you've been around <laughs> LeanPub and we haven't spoken. So it's funny, I, I was saying before we started, before I hit record, um, typically we begin by asking people about their origin story. Uh, but you just uh, had an interview that you did yesterday um, uh, where you talked about multiple origin stories, um, including your own. So I'll maybe be a little bit more, and I, of course, we'll link to that in the transcript for this for this interview, because um, it's a really fun interview. But um, I guess I'll start by being a little bit more specific in your case. Um, 
what was your first experience? Where did, well, where did you grow up? And what was your first experience with a computer and programming? Uh, so I actually grew up in Jersey, uh, well, on, on the island of, of Jersey. And my first, my first memories of computing, I think. So my, my dad said he imported one of the first personal computers into Jersey in the, I'm going to get the dates wrong, but I'm going to say late 70s, early 80s. Um, and the first computer I remember actually playing with kind of properly was the BBC B micros, uh, which were very popular in the UK in the schools um, when I was a school kid. So, yeah, I'm, I think I probably played with a computer before that, but I'm, I'm going to say the BBC's, BBC microcomputers. And so would this have been the kind of thing where you were kind of typing in programs from magazines or things like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was like line 10, print something, line 20, go to 10. And then once you get bored of that, you can change the colors. And then once you get bored of that, uh, we had a bunch of magazines. I think they were called the Input Magazines. And it was one of these kind of weekly periodicals where you'd, you'd, you'd buy a magazine on week one and you'd get like 50 lines of code to type in. And then that didn't do anything. So you had to wait till week two to get the next 50 lines. And of course, what would happen is there'd be a typo somewhere in the, in the 100 lines, but they'd only realize like three weeks later because uh, all of these things like printed, of course. So then like five weeks later or something, there's a, oh, by the way, line 54 of this first program four weeks ago is wrong. And, and it was just a, it was just the most funniest thing ever, of course. And 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 then you kind of lose the the t cassettes and the discs that these things are stored on. And yeah, it was it was just horrendous. Some of the programmers were spread over months and they just took so much time to type in. But that's yeah, it was fun. That's fascinating. I've actually, I've never, in all the stories I've, I've heard of people sort of like um, uh, using sort of magazines and stuff like that to do programming. I've actually never heard of serial publishing of um, yeah, pro yeah. programs. <laughs> that's really interesting. But you're- It keeps you coming back, doesn't it? it it's what, sorry? <laughs> it, keeps it keeps you coming back. Yeah, definitely. You have definitely. to complete the program, even if there's a typo in it. Yeah, well, that's it's interesting that you mentioned that too. There's this um kind of old kind of um sort of nightmare story from gaming of I think it was the first King's Quest game where um one of the solutions to a to a puzzle was I think was typing Rumpelstiltskin backwards, uh, but in I think it was the original version of the game they had a typo, so <laughs> even even if you were clever enough to figure out it was Rumpelstiltskin and you had to do it backwards, you you still couldn't complete the yeah, quest yeah. because if there was a Never mistake win. in the game oh, um, wow. and then it was only through you know kind of back channels or gossip or magazines that you could actually find out and it's it's a really it's just a really interesting um way to get into programming compared to compared to now obviously yeah um which is, yeah, which totally. is something i'm going to ask you a question about in a moment but you so you studied uh computer science um i did yes uh, at, at, at reading i think right yeah and um reading university uh, in the uk yeah. And so like, you know, sort of, I think, I think you and I are of the same, the same vintage. Um, uh, but uh, what, what was studying computer science like in the early nineties? I mean, this would have been just when kind of the popularization of the web was happening and things like that. Yeah. So when I, I started my university course, I started it in 1993 and I actually started doing a joint computer science and cybernetics course. And it, it, it turns out the Reading University is actually one of the um, more well-known, well-regarded places for cybernetics. There's a professor there, uh, what's his name, Kevin Warwick, and he's 
one of these people, certainly when I was at university, he was getting, he, he was planning to get stuff implanted in his arm. Uh, so he could like walk around the building and kind of like tap himself in. And this was back in the early 90s. So yeah, I, I started on, on a cybernetics computer science course. And the cybernetics stuff was kind of interesting. It was all robotics and artificial intelligence and stuff like that. Uh, but there was a bit too much hardware for my liking. So after the, after the first few weeks, I kind of ditched the cybernetics thing uh, and chose much more of a kind of pure uh, computer science. And when I started doing the computer science course, we did lots of stuff like um, Modular 2 and C and Pop 11 and Prolog and Occam and kind of lots of, I guess, kind of like academic style languages. And you're right, the web was in its early infancy. And in my third year project, which would have been 95, 96, I actually remember pitching to one of the professors about my final year project. I would like to build something that would allow me to uh, do like HTML in a kind of what you see is what you get style editor. And I was basically discouraged from doing that because it was too hard and too new and et cetera, et cetera. So my, my final year project ends up being like a traditional um, C++ Windows GUI application. So yeah, none of the, none of the web stuff really got into my course as kind of a couple of years earlier, I guess. Yeah, that's really interesting. And so would you have been able to then use the web to kind of like, you know, learn programming things that you weren't learning in class? Were there lots of resources available at the time? Not, not really, because of all of those languages that I've, I've already kind of mentioned. Um, all of the material for those languages was in, in printed paper books, uh, conveniently, in most cases, written by the authors who were lecturing the course. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm not entirely sure what happened there. But uh yeah, there wasn't much in terms of kind of web-based stuff to um, support and supplement our course material. Yeah, it, uh, it was in a different subject from computer science, but I once had a, a professor tell me when I was in grad school, um, if you want to make the real money, write, write the intro to X uh, yeah. textbook. Um, uh, yeah. that's, that's where, that's where the cash is. And so of course, uh, nowadays, uh, you know, skipping ahead a couple of couple of decades, um, things are very different um, when it comes yeah. to learning about, uh, you know, computer science and, and programming in particular online, you know. Um, and I, one question that comes up often on the podcast in one form or another is, if you were starting out now with the intention of having a career like the one that you've had, would you do a full kind of four-year university degree in computer science or would you try another approach? Oh, that's, that's a really tough question, isn't it? Um... I mean, from from one perspective, having something like a computer computer science degree, in theory, in theory, should give you a very good grounding in in lots of the kind of more academic stuff. You know, some of the more uh, structured and formal foundations that are really applicable to industry. In real terms, however, many universities are still stuck in some cases doing the stuff I did 20 years ago, albeit with different languages. And, and this is one of the complaints I see quite often, uh, students coming out of university and they're kind of being thrown into their first job and their first projects and products and nothing they learned at university is kind of useful right now today. 
I mean, this actually happened with my degree as well. So my first job out of university was working for a small consulting company. Uh, and we were using Power Builder, which was a, a kind of um, mid-1990s 4GL uh, type environment. And most of the Power Builder, uh, Power Builder, Power Builder apps uh, were kind of front ends to a Sybase relational database. And I did literally no database theory at all on my three-year course. So, I mean, that's that's kind of a really good example of some skills that were being used in industry back in the in the mid to late 90s that weren't covered on the course. And the same thing is kind of happening today. That said, of course, there are some university courses out there where you've got some lecturers who are doing kind of half the time lecturing and half the time actually doing stuff in industry. So I think if you can get yourself on one of those courses, that's a, it's potentially a much, much better starting point. Um, but yeah, is it useful to stay? I don't know. I honestly can't answer that question. Um, my gut feels says it's useful, but in reality, may, maybe it's a different story. Yeah, thanks very much for that answer. It's um, it's it's one I have sort of hit people with, and sort of the, often people are like, "Wow, what a hard question." This <laughs> is an answer, but um, but some and some people are sort of you know sort of very straightforward. They're like, "No, no way, I would ever do it again." And other people are like, "Absolutely." Um, and it just sort of speaks to how difficult it is, um, particularly devoting four years of your life. And if you're in a place where, when you're young, and um, if you're in a place where tuition is very high, for example, um, yeah. you know, then that 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 sort of compounds the kind of commitment that you're making. Um, yeah. And often, often I, I one one sort of my kind of position on it is like, the difficult thing is that you know if you're if you're sort of very calculating and you want to kind of do like return on investment kind of things you know, the argument gets very difficult to make for it. But if if you're kind of like, you know, four years to spend in study in your youth, if you can afford it, just brings with it all these sort of really yeah. profound benefits that you kind of, my sort of clever phrases must be possessed in order to be perceived. Um, you know, <laughs> like you kind of have to go through a long period of of real hard work and study to see how yeah. that is in itself kind of valuable. But like, of course you need to have the ability to do that in terms of money and time. Um, and yeah. sort of, but that, that just makes it inherently difficult to convince someone who doesn't possess it yet that you will, you will have this magic, magical power at the end. Uh, especially yeah. when not everybody, not everybody does get that in the end. And sometimes it's just a right. very disappointing thing. So it's a very hard question, but it is something that I think it's important to sort of think and talk about. And in particular in a world where, um, you know, when you talk to people who do sort of, you know, software development recruitment, they'll all say like, almost all will say a computer science degree is not a requirement anymore, uh, like it was in the past. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've I've worked with developers who have had degrees and have been useless, and I've worked with developers who have not had degrees and have been awesome. So you know, just the does this person have a degree tick box is is not a a sufficiently deep way to kind of judge someone's skill. It's 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 interesting that you asked me this question today because I've I've literally just come back from the UK on uh, Sunday. Uh, I was dropping my 18 year old off at university, so he's starting university. Um, it's not computer science; it's commercial photography. And a bunch of people have have asked us the same thing. You know, what's what's he expecting to get out of this course? You know, why can't he just go be an, an apprentice and go learn commercial photography? And for me, it's you know, there's lots of intangible stuff there about. Um, meeting people and then you've, you've you've got the whole thing around university life etc etc et going to bars etc etc and um 
a lot of it's also about contacts, isn't it? It's like the, the friendships you make and the contacts you make. And so uh, maybe that's more applicable for what he's doing in commercial photography because they seem to have some links there. But, but again, if, if the course has some strong links to industry, that, that can help you in the future, maybe fast track you. So, yeah, interesting. Lots of things to consider, really. Oh, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more about that. And it's not it's not even just the networking within your or like uh, connections that you make within your area. It's, um, you know, the uh, mystique around a doctor or a lawyer is demystified when you were 18 years old at university <laughs> with friends who became doctors and lawyers later. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, and you know, that actually that actually like that actually can be a very important, important kind of thing to learn and kind of set of friends to have throughout your life to call upon when there's a yeah. mole on your back or you get a jury summons or <laughs> um but uh, it's actually interesting you bring that up so um well uh, congratulations to 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 your son for you know starting something new but one thing i wanted to ask you was um this is this is kind of a bit random but moving to london as a young person to start a career is actually something we've talked about on the podcast before because i did that myself at one point um, so what was that like for you? And you said, and actually I wanted to sort of, you also mentioned going to the UK. So a lot of people might not know that Jersey is actually not in the UK. Um, everyone can look at the Wikipedia page for the, for the sort of complex explanation, but you're slightly <laughs> off the coast of France. It's a protectorate, yeah. I believe is maybe the technical term for it or something like that. Um, but what was it like for you when you moved to London? And what was your first, what were your first job or jobs like there? So it was... <laughs> It was kind of something I fell into. So I, I went to Reading University and studied there for three years. And then of course, as, as most people do, you kind of meet a partner. And then I was kind of faced with a choice. Do I bring her back to Jersey or do we kind of stay around Reading or do we go to where her parents live? And in the end, we decided for our first year after university to kind of stay in, in Reading. So in terms of kind of going from being a student and graduating to getting a job, I did the whole go to the careers fairs things at different universities and talk to the companies who are trying to get you to um, come on board and, 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 and work for them and stuff. And I had a bunch of interviews with those kind of large consulting companies, didn't really enjoy them, kind of not really for me. Uh, and I had an interview with a small consulting company in London and I could just kind of really gelled with them. And I thought, yeah, this is awesome. This is exactly what I want to do. So I ended up getting a job with a small consulting company in London. And my now wife got a job with a small consultant company in Swindon. So Reading was kind of like halfway between the two. So we would go our separate ways every morning. Uh, and we did that for about a year. And then I think she came to our Christmas party as a guest of mine. And she basically got poached by the managing director of the company I worked for. So, so that kind of killed the, uh, the end of the Swindon thing. So then uh, we were both working in London for the same company, but different projects and stuff. And, and then after kind of that, that time period, we ended up kind of moving more towards London and um, uh, more towards the kind of Kent area because that's where my wife's parents were based. So that's, that's kind of how I, I got into the whole London thing, really. Um, and yeah, I, I, I stayed and worked in London for about 12 years, uh, obviously moved house a bunch of times. And, and of course, we, with London, the further out you move, the cheaper and the bigger the houses become, but the longer the commute becomes. So it, it's all kind of interesting trade-offs. So by the end of our time in London, we were living right out in the, in the Kent countryside with like a nice big house. Uh, but the train journey was like an hour on the fast train into London. And yeah, it was fun. Uh, really enjoyed it. Um, 
again, not something I planned to do. I, I would certainly do the same thing again. And what, what's interesting is when I moved back to Jersey, I, I worked with and met a bunch of people who have never left Jersey. And and you can tell there's a different mindset. So uh, something I, I always recommend to people, especially if they are from a small island community like Jersey, of course, is to go out to the UK, visit some places, go work somewhere, get some experience in, in a big environment, and then come back if you want to. Uh, so yeah, for me, it worked really, really well. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that. I particularly uh, love the detail of uh, part of London life is moving around, um, living yeah. in lots of different places. Yeah. I, I lived, you know, I, I had the experience of living in um, Angel, uh, near near Angel Station, sort of like 15 minute walk from my workplace in the city, uh, all the way out all the, to being all the way out in like Beckenham Hill. Um, right. You know, um, you know, and sort of like. So we used to live at Beckenham Junction, actually. Did you? Really? Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. So yeah, those, those, um, that, that commuting life, you know, is, is something yeah. that you get familiar with, but also, but it can be from many different, many different directions. Um, and so just sort of, uh, uh, you know, getting into the detail, I think of, of, of what the kind of work you did in your career and sort of maybe trying to draw a connection to, to where you, where you, where you went after that. Uh, so you were working early on with, um, UML or, um, unified modeling language. And I was wondering if you yes. could just explain a little bit about what, what for maybe people who've never heard of it, maybe aren't even into software programming at all. What is UML and when, what kind of work were you doing with it in early on? So UML or the Unified Modeling Language is basically a, it's, what's the easiest way to describe this, particularly for, for non-technical people? It, it, it's basically a way to draw diagrams that allow you to map out the design and architecture of the software that you're building. So much like you might get like a set of blueprints for a house or a building, uh, UML is kind of the, the the equivalent thing for the software world. So yes, I I started my professional career in '96 here at that small consulting company in London, and pretty soon after I joined, um, uh, first couple of years I imagine I went on a, a quite extensive five day UML course, and that kind of set the scene for lots of the stuff I did afterwards. So when our so let me let me let me backtrack. The sort of work I did was I'm. Um, um, I'm working for a small consulting company, but I'm actually building software either for or with our customers. And many of our customers were um, things like the big banks in London. So they would either give us a thing that we would build in our offices or more commonly, I would be shipped out to their offices and, and get a, a seat and a desk in their offices and kind of work next to their developers building something on their premises, on their equipment, et cetera, et cetera. So when we're doing that, there's often a need to produce documentation. So of course, I don't want to work for the bank forever. I want to go and do different projects for different companies and see different things and, and get some variety in my career. So one of my goals very early on was I, I, I want to make it so that I am replaceable, which is kind of a weird thing to say. But one of the ways to do that, of course, is to make sure that everything I'm doing is nicely documented so I can hand this documentation and the source code over to my customers and then I can leave and they can pick it up and they can maintain it, enhance it, add features to it, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, UML plays a big part in that. When you are describing software systems, people want a bunch of diagrams illustrating like, you know, what's the architecture of this software system? What sort of technology is being used? Um, what sort of processes need to be run on which servers, et cetera, et cetera. So I used to use UML quite extensively for diagramming and documenting my software systems. And that was the case until 
I think around 2004, 2005, something like that. Uh, and then UML usage kind of declined quite quickly, um, probably because of the Agile Manifesto for software development. Um, many people kind of saw this Agile movement as an excuse to not write documentation uh, and not to do things like big design up front exercises. And unfortunately, UML became coupled with all of that stuff and thrown away when people started doing their quote unquote agile transformations. So yeah, UML was quite an integral part of the way I, I worked in documented software systems up into kind of mid 2000s. Yeah, so this is this is a really interesting thing that I, I know you've, you've written and spoken about quite a bit. But so um, one, one way of sort of uh, thinking about this kind of moment in history and where things kind of began to change is that a sort of cartoonish view of it is prior to the Agile Manifesto, this thing that came out that we'll link to in the transcript for this podcast, you can think of kind of, again, and it's a cartoonish representation of it, but people would write, you know, like, let's say a, a hundred page document about like, here are all the things that you're going to write in your code. And then they would hand that off to the programmers and the programmers would follow those instructions. Um, yeah, yeah and totally. Diagrams would be a, would be a kind of, high-level way of kind of visualizing and explaining things. And then you go into sort of various levels of detail after, you know, uh, deeper than that within. So each 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 box in the diagram might have then a sort of like bunch of programming happening associated with it. Um, but then this, this thing came out called the Agile Manifesto. And what people were saying was basically like, we need to be able to sort of like not be sort of so rigidly, if, if we want to really produce great software, we need to be able to operate outside the constraints of just following a set of instructions. Um, and part of the kind of cultural shift was like, we just don't, we don't want to be handed off a bunch of documents that then we have to kind of follow. Uh, but what they didn't say was don't document anything and don't diagram <laughs> right. anything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's why the word balance is there in the, in the title of, of your book. Uh, but then, so this shift happened and, and UML or unified modeling language wasn't so popular anymore. And there was maybe even a kind of movement against it. And I think that this, this sort of played into um, the uh, the creation of your first book and and when and how it came about. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that story. Yeah. So what's what's interesting about my my thoughts on this whole subject now is they've basically not changed for about twenty years. So when the Agile Manifesto was was kind of created and started becoming kind of more popular, more mainstream, I kind of looked at it and thought, well, that's really the approach I, I tried to take anyway because. Prior to this coming out, I, I had worked on projects that worked exactly how you described. Somebody would come to me and say, right, we need this feature built in order for you to start coding. I want you to write a one-page document detailing how you're going to do this. It needs to include some diagrams that describe exactly what your code's going to look like. And I want you to outline all the test cases you're going to use to test your code. I'm like, oh, really? And, and, and this whole thing to me is like, this is just a complete waste of time because it's just quick to go write the code and kind of prove it works with tests. So that that's why my my kind of thoughts on this whole thing, this whole topic, is not really changing in in the in the in the um, past twenty years. So coming on to the question, so I go through my career, I work in London. I'm kind of swapping between small consulting companies. If you work for a consulting company, if you want to grow the consulting company, you need more developers to form more teams, and if you have more teams, you need more people to go and lead to those teams. So as as I progress through my career in London. I eventually kind of move up to become a kind of team lead, tech lead, software architect type role. And I did that for a little while. 
And then I was uh, part of the, the um, group of people in one of the organizations that I worked for who would go and train other software developers to kind of move into those tech lead architecture roles. The, the last company I worked for, we actually had a really good um, career progression matrix. So we had a bunch of different kind of uh, roles or tiers to find in the organization. And in order to move from one um, one level, one ranking, if you want to call it that, um, one level to the next, there was a bunch of skills that you had to demonstrate on a on a on a team on a project you're working on. So this was a, um, it was it was it was a really nice way to make sure people had the right skills in order to be promoted into the next level of their work. So yeah, I was I was I was part of the team who were kind of teaching um, developers to think architecturally, draw diagrams, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So in terms of the the books, so that training I was doing internally, I kind of took that out externally. So I started doing some training uh, courses and some workshops for a local training provider in London and also some of the conferences. And then I thought to myself, well, hang on a second. What I'm teaching people is basically a kind of lean and lightweight approach to what I consider to be modern software architecture. So having gone through this whole like um, movement from being a software developer myself into a software architecture role, there's a bunch of stuff that I felt I had to learn. And I couldn't find a single book that I could point to that would basically lead me on that journey. Now, of course, there are lots of software architecture books out there and, and there always have been. And there are some fabulous software architecture books out there from the SEI, the, the Software Engineering Institute. But from a kind of like day-to-day, -day, lightweight, pragmatic point of view, they, did, they weren't answering the questions I wanted to get answered, like what sort of things should I be doing and thinking about if I'm leading a team of developers? And so that's really kind of how I framed all this. And, and that's, that's how I approached uh, kind of teaching this topic and talking about it. And so back in... Uh, I think it was 2008, I, I had this idea for a book, which was a kind of lightweight introduction to software architecture. And because I'd written some books for some publishing companies in the past, I pitched my idea for an architecture book to a bunch of publishing companies. And every single one of them said, no, it's a horrendous idea. You won't sell any copies. So that was kind of quite disheartening at the time. And um, around that time, uh, Gar Reynolds wrote his Presentation Zen book. Have you come across Presentation Zen? It's an awesome book. Uh, no, um, I haven't, no. All right, it's, it's a fabulous book. If, if you ever need to do presentations, um, there's tons of amazing advice in there. So, yeah, I, I was kind of big into the Presentation Zen book. And we were kind of doing lots of presentations for clients and proposals. And I think Apple had just released a way to write ebooks. And so I actually started writing a PDF ebook um, on my Mac. And it was just very time consuming. And I just kind of gave up the whole thing. So, yeah, that's how I kind of got into uh, thinking about writing a book, basically, because I had this idea and all the publishers turned me down. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting, and you are also doing something um, uh, uh, which I think inspires a lot of people to write to write books like this. Which is, I, I, I it's the book I wish I had when I faced these yeah. challenges. So here's here's what I learned, but sort of with the intention of you know not 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 looking back, but for someone who's looking forward to to doing yeah. all of these things. Um, and there's there's a couple of interesting things in there. One of which is you know what's what's software architecture, but also career progression, right? So you go from 
you go from being a, a programmer, like let's say, you know, who's getting handed these instructions or told what to do, now go back to your computer and do it, to the person who has to sort of think about how this is going to be created. Right. Yeah. Um, and and, uh, and organize people's work and, and lead them in the right direction and do team alignment and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, ex exactly. And so like, you know, sort of designing software architecture isn't just sort of a diagram. <laughs> there's there's no, much more, no. much more, much more to yeah. it than that. I shouldn't, and I shouldn't say just making a diagram because that's a very important thing that we're going to talk about. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, right. Um, but, um, but so I was wondering just, just for a moment, if you could talk about what you do talk about in the book, which is, you know, what, what software architecture means. So for me, very simply, uh, software architecture is about technical leadership. So it's it, it's exactly what we just kind of briefly outlined. It's you know having a goal in mind, uh, putting a starting point in place. It's making sure that everybody on your team is aligned. We're all going in the same direction. We have the the same consistent approaches to solving common problems. We um we have a, a an understood way to structure our codes to to do our testing to do error handling and security and logging, um and, and we're we're trying to make sure that the software we're building ultimately meets the requirements you know both the the features that users want and also things like security and uh, data confidentiality and performance and scaling and, and and lots of stuff that people don't generally think about um, initially when they're designing software. So yeah, that that's that's really my kind of in a nutshell definition of software architecture. It's it's about technical leadership. Yeah, and, and it's it's interesting you mentioned um uh you know part of you know you had you had this sort of um uh, concept early on of sort of making yourself replaceable, but like part of part of that leadership is being able to kind of like you know if someone from the team drops off, what 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 would we do for example, and sort of having a system in place, and that's one version of that is a word that's come up a couple times already, which is documentation, um, yeah. which is like can someone, you know, learn about the project um, without having sort of read every line of code or something like that, right? right. How, yeah. how would they first go into that? And um, one of the really important ways of doing that is having these, these visualizations um, uh, and those, those require sort of operating at different levels of abstraction. And so one thing you developed was something called the C4 model to try and sort of give a kind of collective understanding, a sort of shared language that people can have about like, what are the levels of abstraction? What are these things showing? So I was wondering if we could just go into a little bit of detail about what the C4 model is. Yeah, sure. So so let me give you the backstory about how the C4 model kind of came into existence. So again, end of the um, kind of uh, 2005, 2010 period, um, I'm, I'm running training courses. I've started to take these training courses outside. Uh, so now these are public training courses and I'm getting people from different organizations coming along. And part of the uh, training course was a design exercise. So it's like, here's a set of requirements, break yourself up into groups of two, three, four people and go away for about an hour and a half and design a piece of software that will meet those requirements. And the output from this exercise was draw one or more diagrams to, to somehow describe and document your, your design, your solution. And so we did this. And during the workshops, I had this kind of round robin exercise where we would get every group to kind of stand up and present their diagrams and present their architecture. And we could challenge them and ask them questions about the solutions to make sure they were going to work. And, and very quickly, I realized that I couldn't understand the diagrams. So here's me trying to teach software architecture. And I can't understand the diagrams people are producing in my workshop. So I thought this might have been a small problem. Um, I could have taught people UML, of course, but as we already discussed, UML kind of is already on the decline in, in kind of 2006, 2007, 2008. 
And so there's not much appetite for teaching people UML as a part of my training course. So I figured out, well, how would I do this? And, and that's really where the C4 model comes from. The C4 model is essentially, it's, it's me formalizing and teaching people how I've always thought about drawing software architecture diagrams in that kind of like post UML era. So the diagrams I used to draw was kind of, here's a high level picture of the thing we're building. And then we kind of progressively zoom into more and more detail, like it will be something like Google Maps. And that's essentially the C4 model. It's a set of hierarchical abstractions, so different levels of detail. Um, and it's a set of uh, hierarchical diagrams that map onto those uh, different levels of detail. Right. And so the, the, just to go into detail, the four levels of the C4 model are um, system context, containers, components, and code. Um, and yeah. I was wondering if you could just uh, talk a little bit about that. So what, what's, what's the system context? So the system context, imagine you are building a system to publish books. So you have your system to publish books and your context diagram basically says, right, I'm going to draw a box in the center representing the, the system that's going to be publishing books. And then we, in order to draw the diagram, we have to kind of answer a bunch of questions. So first of all, who are the different types of people that might be using this book publishing system? So you've got, you know, um, authors uh, you've got people who might be reading books and purchasing books so there's a bunch of different user types different actors roles personas you can kind of instantly think of so you kind of craft up a diagram showing all of these different user types um, and their interactions with the book publishing system and then of course your book publishing system might be integrating with other systems in the real world so maybe if you're selling books you're integrating with like a payment provider so maybe you have a, a box on your diagram saying this is the payment provider we're using and you know we're using it to process payments or maybe you're publishing your books to uh, amazon automatically so you might have a box uh, representing amazon with a kind of an arrow from you from your publishing system to amazon so that's really the system context diagram it's basically saying let's draw a diagram with the system that we are focused on in the middle and then we want to show the different uh, types of people, users, roles, actors, personas who are interacting with our system. And then we want to show the other systems in the environment that we are interacting with or, or, or perhaps they're interacting with us. So, yeah, that's that's the system context diagram. Yeah, it's really it's really interesting. So at this level, um, one can think of it as like, you know, you're not necessarily talking about like a technology, even sort of something straightforwardly understood as a technology. You're talking about the kind of high level kind of, I don't know, the kind of yeah, like the people who are going to be interacting with it, the sort of things you're trying to achieve. Right. Um, is yeah, the it's, kind of, it's like it's like super high level, very few technologies. And it's a diagram that anybody can understand, you know, developers on the team, architects on the team, testers on the team, through to non-technical business analysts, domain experts, project managers, et cetera. I was going to say that's a sort of a really important feature of all of this is communication or, or dimension yeah. of all of this is communication. Um, and uh, there's something called domain-driven design that listeners might be sort of familiar with, things like that, where like people try and conceptualize, like how can we come up with, you know, both a, both a kind of like, you know, spoken or written language and also a kind of visual language for communicating about project in a way that people from all directions and sort of all dimensions of it can understand it, right? So like, you know, yeah. the person who's um, on a, the sort of, as it, as it were, the business side of things who's being told, get the numbers up this quarter, Johnson, you know, <laughs> that, that person's interests are going to be, you know, or sort of understanding of this, of the system um, uh, needs to be robust, but it does, they don't need to understand how, you know, how the code works or something like that. Right. Yeah, but, yeah. but the person who's writing the code can often get sort of like, 
way off in, in technical engineering land um, and sort of sort of lose sort of a sense of the sort of there's this other side of things where we actually have to make money um, yeah. that, that sort of should, should actually should drive some of your behavior and, and decisions that you make. Um, so that's the system context level. And then and then the next level down is containers, as, as you named it uh, before Docker kind of, you know, became, became uh, <laughs> yeah. a user of that term and you know, there, there it is. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, that's, that's fine. Um, so what, what are containers in the C4 model? So by, by container, I basically mean uh, an application or a data store. So an application being something like uh, a single page application running in your web browser. It could be an app running on a mobile device. It could be uh, a kind of traditional uh, GUI desktop app, or it could be uh, like a command line process or a batch process. But, 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 yeah, basically, it's it, it, it's an application. It's a bunch of code that you're writing to do something. Um, that code you're going to have to run on a server, run on a client device. You know, you have to deploy it somewhere. It's that sort of thing. Uh, or it could be a data store. So most systems have data. That data is being stored in a, a relational database schema, or maybe um, an Amazon S3 bucket, or the same on Azure, or maybe just um, a bunch of files on a on a folder on a network share. So that's really what what a container is. It's it's an application or data store. And yeah, the the container diagram, the the corresponding container diagram, basically all it does is it takes your book publishing system in this case and kind of zooms into the the boundary of that system and shows you the various applications and data tools that kind of live inside that thing. So yeah, now we're getting much more into technology details. We're talking about JavaScript apps running in a web browser, communicating across the internet to your Spring Boot app running on a server, which is storing information in a, in a MySQL database. And it might be storing PDFs in Amazon S3. And so it's, it's kind of getting more technical, uh, but it's still quite a high level diagram. So for example, to, to, pick, to pick one sort of book creation system uh, that I'm familiar with. Um, so for example, if we were doing a, a sort of container level for LeanPub, we might have a container for our in-browser editor, for example. Yep. So where you write your book in your browser and you might have a container for our GitHub writing mode and you might have a different container for um, uh, you know, our upload mode, for example. But at the, high, at the system level, it would be book production, right? You might right. have a box yep. for book book production and then in there you'd have these different containers um, for the different ways of, of, of making those books um, and then and then the low so the next level down below system context and then below containers is components uh, so what are what are components so component is is a heavily overloaded term in the industry unfortunately but by components I basically mean uh, a grouping of code a uh, grouping of functionality uh, with uh, a nice well-defined nice clean interface uh, running inside a container. So, so basically, when I talk about components, I'm basically referring to the things that exist inside the applications that we build. So if people are building like a server-side application, which they, they consider to be a bunch of components organized in layers, your component diagram shows you those components organized into layers. So really, it's, it's, reflect, it's starting to reflect the high-level structural concepts, the high-level structural building blocks that exist in your code base. So it's it's starting to, to talk about the code and the code structure, but it's not talking directly about, you know, the intricacies of the code and, and, and kind of how it's put together. That's that's what we say for level four. And and that level four, if if we kind of go back to that, that story earlier where you have the manager comes on and says, right, we'd like you to build a feature. Please draw me a bunch of UML class diagrams illustrating how you're going to design that feature. 
that's really what level four is all about. It's, it's describing um, how things really exist in the code base. Yeah, so level four, the, the, this, fine the C, yeah, this the C for level four is code, um, uh, and uh, and it's it's really interesting actually. One thing I know that you talk about in in your talks and things is like you actually should like you shouldn't be manually diagramming, yeah, kind of the fourth level or the code level. And one of the reasons is that um, uh, a lot of the sort of you know tools that people use to write code can actually produce diagrams kind of at the click of a button that show you sort of if. There's various sort of categories like classes, for example, and things mm. like that, where you can actually just kind of output output really useful diagrams without needing to kind of manually um, sort of devise them. Yeah, and it, it, it's just too much information for most people to deal with, to be honest. So if you've got, if you've got um, an application and it's a million lines of Java code, for example, that million lines of Java code might be 50,000 Java clusters there's no way that a class diagram showing 50,000 boxes is useful to anybody apart from to tell you it's a big system. So yeah, people really shouldn't be, um, sorry, people shouldn't be manually creating these diagrams themselves unless they specifically want to describe a small subset, or maybe they want to describe a small subset that hasn't been built yet. But yeah, for the most case, I'd kind of lean and encourage people to, um, do automatic generation wherever possible, assuming that they have some need and will get benefit from having those low-level diagrams, which, to be fair, most people don't. And it's one one really interesting thing about about this is that um, so it's sort of very sort of easy to talk about you know diagrams and how those diagrams sort of correspond to some underlying technology. Um, but the tech, when the technology changes, you know, how do you, how do you change the diagram? You like all of a sudden you'll send in the, in the sort of real application right. of you run into these very straightforward issues. And um, it's very interesting. You've got to, you've got to talk about uh, diagrams as code and things like that. And um, one thing that you've done that you've gone ahead and sort of like, you know, yourself sort of having this sort of developed this sort of theoretical understanding and this sort of like practical application in terms of like actually coming up with a sort of shared model for, for how to do this, you've built your own diagramming kind of software um, structurizer. Uh, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and sort of what, what, why was it that the sort of typical diagramming tools that people used weren't really adequate to the process that you think people should ideally adopt if they can? Yeah, so when I was, when I was running my training courses for uh, companies, again, we're in the kind of 2010 onwards era now. Um, most of my design exercises, the, the things I was describing earlier, they're all done on um, flip chart paper or whiteboards. So it's just pen and whiteboard, pen and paper. And it's a great way to do design and it's a great way to kind of teach the C4 model and it's a great way to help people learn the C4 model. But the obvious question that comes afterwards is, well, what tooling do you recommend? You know, we find this approach useful for, um, and we think it will work for diagramming our software systems but we don't want to use a piece of paper or a whiteboard. So what tooling do you recommend? And when I started to do my workshops, my, my recommendation was, was really just, well, the diagrams are nothing special. They're just boxes and arrows. And, and okay, there's some recommendations here and some guidelines, but essentially the it's just boxes with text inside and arrows with a label on. And so because it's just boxes and arrows, you can use pretty much any tool that you're already using. So if you're already using PowerPoint or Visio to draw diagrams, just use PowerPoint or Visio to draw C4 diagrams. And that's kind of fine and it works, but it grated on me. You know, me going into organizations saying, well, just use Visio, it's fine. 
Visio and other diagramming tools, you know, they're fabulous diagramming tools. They're super sophisticated and you can do a ton of stuff with these diagramming tools. But there's a huge problem with them. Well, two problems. Um, first of all, you'll spend a ton of time just making sure, making sure stuff looks nice. So you're trying to get all the boxes the same size and the text the same size. You're trying to align all the text in the same way. And you're trying to nudge the boxes so they're kind of nicely um, uh, vertically aligned and centrally aligned and horizontally aligned. And then you kind of add a little, you, you might add one more word into the box and it makes the box bigger and it throws the alignment out. And you spend far too long just kind of messing around with making diagrams look pretty when it really doesn't matter that much. So that, that's kind of problem number one. Problem number two is, is the nature of the C4 model is that it's hierarchical. So you have that system context diagram. In order to draw that system context diagram, as, as I've kind of already alluded to, you're drawing a bunch of boxes representing people, so your users and other software systems. When you, when you kind of zoom into the system that you are describing to get down to level two containers, your container diagram is going to show the same people and the same software systems you are interacting with. And of course, with a tool like Visio, what do you do? So you've got your context diagram in one tab. What you do now is you open a new tab in Visio, you copy paste all of the people and the software systems onto tab number two, and then you kind of fill in the blanks in the middle. But what happens when somebody reviews your diagram and like, well, the name of that box, the name of that person, is wrong okay i can i can fix it but now you've got to fix it on two tabs and nobody does that so of course your diagrams become out of sync um very very quickly so i i i kind of figured this out and i thought right what type of tool do i want to build and coming from my uml background and using lots of uml modeling tools the uml modeling tools did a lot of this stuff for you automatically just because it's a modeling tool so Visio is, is what I would call a diagramming tool. All you're doing is you're kind of crafting up a diagram with boxes and arrows. A modeling tool is something a, a, a little bit more specific. So with a modeling tool, what you're doing is you're, you're creating a single definition of like a person or a software system. And you might give that person or soft, software system some characteristics, some properties, some attributes. And then what you do is you, you, you start a blank diagram and you essentially say, I want to use that person I've defined on my new diagram. And then you might open a second diagram and you might say, I want to use that same person I already defined on the second diagram as well. And then when you go and change that central definition, uh, say you want to rename that person, it's automatically renamed across both diagrams. So, so both diagrams are essentially sharing the data from that shared model. And that's all the modeling tool is. And unfortunately, when I say modeling tool, even in my conference talks today, people kind of shut down instantly like, no, we don't want to do that because they've got so many bad experiences from using big, bloated, expensive modeling tools from the, the late 90s, early 2000s. So with all this in mind, I, I, was, I was thinking, right, what's the tool I want to use myself? And the answer is I want to, to make a modeling tool. So I want to solve the problem of inconsistent diagrams showing uh, you know, different versions of the same element. And I, I want to make a tool that allows me to craft these models up quickly. And I don't want to worry too much about the look and feel. So I do want the diagrams to look nice and I want people to be able to change the fonts and change the colors and change the shapes and, and all that good stuff. But I want the diagram rendering engine the diagramming tool to do a lot of that hard work for me and that's essentially what my structurizer tooling is so 
Um, it, it's it's been through a whole bunch of different iterations and variations um, o- over the past uh, seven or eight years. Um, but essentially, it's now a kind of diagrams as code tool. So you you create a model um, using either a textual based DSL or you can use um, uh, an actual programming language. So there's a bunch of libraries out there for Java and C Sharp and Python PHP. So you kind of craft up a model of your software system uh, using the textual DSL or some code. And then you kind of pump that model into my Structurizer rendering engine and it kind of draws the diagrams for you. And it has a very uh, kind of constrained look and feel. So again, it gives you the ability to change some things, but stuff like how is my text inside my box laid out and rendered is kind of all taken care for you, of for you. And that was really the tooling I wanted to create. I want to focus on moving boxes around. I don't really want to care too much about what the boxes look like inside. I just want them all to be the same shape and size and, and color. And I just want to move things around easily. So that that's really the kind of uh, driving factors by my tooling and, and why I created it. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing all that. And there's um, a slash DSL page that people can go to as well, where they can yes. see this, see this actually like in, uh, you know, happening in, in real time, as it were. And you can sort of make changes and click a render button and see how it changes. And, <laughs> stuff like that. and I, I really like the, the sort of, sort of, as it were, kind of subtle point that you're making that like actually having someone make design decisions for you can free you up to sort of be using right. the, a tool in the sort of way you really should be for what you really should be focusing on. Um, yeah. uh, which is, which is a challenge that sort of in our, in our own world we have with, with, with lean pub, right? So like, it's always a, a hard balancing act, right? Because people do care about how things look and how things look do matter. But if what you're, but if you're really spending all this time on the kind of formatting, uh, you're probably kind of, well, spending too much time on formatting, um, <laughs> yeah. and, and, yeah. and having kind of things be a bit regularized can really free people up to do the thinking. Um, and, yeah. and it can, and it can also, of course, very much help people when they're sort of that the people that you're trying to communicate with, right. So they don't have to learn a new convention every time they turn the page, uh, or, or look at a new diagram. Uh, and, and that, you know, goes back to the point you made before where like, you know, you can, you can sort of look at a team's diagram and they might've, they might've known exactly what they were doing at the time, but you, you have no understanding of what they meant by even an arrow, you know, like what, well, what is it, <laughs> yeah. why is it, why is it that color? Why is it dotted? Why is it? not dotted you know things like that and so having these standardized things is a really important thing um, about communication uh just moving on to the last part of the interview where we talk about your experience writing books so you said you'd written books for publishers but uh eventually you you sort of had this book idea rejected and so you decided to to self-publish it and uh so your books i I didn't mention it but you're a best-selling author um you've you've sold a lot of a lot of books on leapub and I just wanted to ask you, what was that experience like? So did you did you do, and again, this is the part where we go into the weeds for sort of people who are interested in maybe becoming authors themselves, things like that. Did you do a lot of marketing for the book when you when you first published it, your, your first book? So did I do a lot of marketing? Initially, no. So um, I need to I need to look back in history and figure out when I first published my book. When was when was LeanPub kind of first out there in the wild for people to use? So LeanPub was first launched in two thousand and ten. Um, I looked right. up I looked up your first book, um, and it uh, I believe it was created in two thousand and twelve. Right. So yeah, one of one of the kind of early early adopters. So yeah, yeah back into in in twenty twelve. Um, I guess my my Twitter following was probably only half what it is maybe now. So I didn't really have a, a huge Twitter following. 
um, and didn't really do much marketing. And, and actually, the first version of the book I published was, I think it was five pages. <laughs> I, 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 I kind of definitely embraced your um, publish early, puff, uh, publish often mantra. And I think the first version of the book was like $4.99 or something. And I figured, well, I'm just going to put this out there. Um, introduction section, maybe some like the, these are the sections I'm planning on writing. Uh, here's, a, here's like a, a $5 price tag. Is it worth me progressing with this further? And, and, and that's, that's really how I approached the whole writing thing. So, yeah, did I do much marketing? Not really, uh, other than kind of just pu pushing some stuff out on Twitter. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that. You know, that's that's. I mean, obviously, that's the sort of like the canonical example of a successful lean pub book, right? Is one that like maybe maybe wouldn't have been maybe publishers wouldn't have published it because they didn't think it was going to work. Uh, you get it out there really really early, uh, but then it starts getting some traction uh, because you realize actually there are you've you've proven five pages in yeah. that there's there's actually interest out there uh, in it, and also you know having a lower price at the beginning that you raise as you go along, things like that. Um, but I imagine you must have uh, probably promoted the book at um, conferences and things like that. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I, I certainly have. So it, it, it's funny. I was, um, I was putting together a new talk recently for a conference I'm speaking at in a couple of months. And it's actually, uh, it's a new talk based upon a talk I did, I think in 2014. So I, I pulled the PDF of the slides and it's actually got screenshots of my, my Limpa book in there. Um, so yeah, I I definitely did include uh, a screenshot of the book cover in my early presentations um, back in the kind of 2012 2013 type years. Yeah, that's really interesting. Actually, that reminds me. I sort of I sort of skipped over a part of your uh, your career progression that I was that I was sort of interested in asking you about. Was at a certain point you went independent, you became a consultant, mm. um, and the reason I bring that up in this context is that often for consultants, like having having a book out there of your own is a really important, it's kind of like the, the best calling card or, you know, sort of business card you could have um, is to actually have a book to point people to or to, or to give to them and things like that. And did that, did, did, did actually publishing like books play a role in your ability to sort of go independent? Um, it's, it's kind of hard to, to say definitively, definitively yes, but I imagine there's, there's definitely some, some correlation with that. Yeah. Um, I've, I've definitely had customers come to me in the past and they've said, we've seen your conference talks on YouTube or we've read your book and we'd like to get you in to discuss the same stuff with the team. So yeah, the, um, the way I approached the book was it, it was, it was kind of two things in one. First of all, if I'm a software developer, what's the book I want to read to kind of push me and nudge me in the right direction to move into a software architecture role, but also because I'm doing the, the training courses and the workshops, I also wanted to write a book that would form like the reference notes for the workshop. So the workshop covers almost exactly the same as the book and vice versa. Yeah. So it's a nice thing that people can read the book and they say, right, we'd like to get you in for a workshop. So that obviously helps with going independent. And also I can kind of gift people the book after the workshop and say, you know, here's the slides, but of course the slides are just lots of words on, on slides. So here's the book with more detail. So yeah, it kind of works both ways. And I think if I if I'm getting this right, you did something really interesting with your um, uh, your book that's now called the C4 model for visualizing software, but it was originally I think called visualizing software architecture. And when I say originally, for years and years and years, the book had this title and its different cover, and then you you changed it. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's a really recent thing. So, um, this is kind of complicated, and it it kind of all happened by accident. So, 
the initial book was called Software Architecture for Developers. And the initial um, software architecture for developers, uh, once I'd been writing it for a few years, it was, I don't know, two, 300 pages maybe, and it included everything. So it included all my thoughts on what software architecture is, um, what the software architecture role entails, things like quality attributes, the things that drive architecture, how to make architecture decisions. It included all my visualization, diagramming and documentation stuff. And it included all of my thoughts on how to do kind of just enough upfront design and, and that whole balance with agility thing. And that was kind of fine. It was great. But then I realized that many of the people who wanted the book were only interested in half of that story. So some were interested in agile half the story and they really didn't care less about the C4 model. And other people wanted only the C4 stuff and they couldn't care less about the whole agile thing. So sometime in, um, Again, I'm not sure exactly when this was, but maybe like 2016, 17 or something, I, I chopped the book in half. So I kept the initial uh, Lean Pub book and I moved all of the kind of theoretical content around architecture to, the, to that book. That became Software Architecture for Developers Volume 1. And I moved all of the diagramming and documentation stuff to uh, what was kind of called Software Architecture for Developers Volume 2. And you're, you're exactly right. The, the kind of subtitle that for that was uh, visualizing, documenting, and exploring your architecture. And uh, only recently I realized, well, hang on a second. Like, I'm the author of the C4 thing, which has just taken off. And I don't have a book that says C4 on the, on, on the cover page. So I, I kind of figured out I should fix that. So if, uh, actually quite recently, I um, kind of rebranded the cover page, changed the title of the, the book. So the, the Lean Pub slug URL is still the same. Uh, I think it's like visualizing software architecture. But yeah, I changed the, the cover page and title of the book. And I moved the documentation stuff from that second volume two into the software guidebook book. So now I've got three books. You've got the initial book, which has all the theoretical stuff. The second book, which is the C4 model and just the C4 model. And the third book, which is essentially the documentation stuff from the second book originally. It's all very complicated. And I think that works better now. <laughs> I hope so. It's it's complicated, but I got I've got to say, like for for anyone listening who's like familiar with the publishing industry, it's like incredibly radical kind of what you what you did. Yeah, I know. You know like you had you had you had a best selling book that you changed the title and cover of. I mean, and, and that 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 would have been in people's in people. No, no, this is it's great. It's great. It's fascinating. Yeah. It's, I mean, this is like we love seeing this kind of experimentation happen. And and um, you know, so for example, like you know, what would happen is like you would have bought Simon's book. And it would, it may be in part of a bundle and it would be, it would be in your library and then you'd go back and it'd be like a different, it would be, it would be different. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I'm, I'm really curious because, so did you get any, did you get any pushback or any kind of like, you know, people mad at you about that? No. So the only push, well, the only pushback I really got was when I initially split the first book into two books, because then people like, well, I paid, I paid for your first book. And now you've removed half the content. I'm like, it's fine. Don't worry, because I, I sent to you. So, you know, you, you have that feature where you can email all the readers if people opt into it. So I, I sent when, when, when I split the book, I sent all of the, the, the readers who opted in. Like I've split the book. Here's the code to get the second book, which is the same content you already have. But here's the code for the second book that you can use for free. So now you've got both books in the library. But of course, <laughs> A bunch of people never opted into those those kind of emails. So so, so I, yeah, like once every other week I'd get some 
some snarky email saying, hey, where's all my content gone? I, I, I just got a new version of a book and half the book's missing. Like, well, what's going on here? So I was like, no worries, here's the code. And that happened for like two years. But yeah, with the recent uh, split, that's all been fine as well. Yeah, it's it's so. I mean, I gotta say, like you know, having been having been around LeanPub for so long, it's so it's so interesting to see, like, because we 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 had a post that we did a long time ago, and we had a whole feature for like ebook mitosis, because you weren't you weren't you weren't the only person to have this sort of experience where like, oh, this is actually two books, you know. So like, what do you, and so we had to actually come up with like, yeah, kind of like, you know, a kind of system for like, you know, what do you do if you want to split a book into, oh, well, you've got to make yeah. a free coupon for the second book and try to communicate that to your readers as well as you can have a way for them to sort of like get in touch with you if they, if they, if they didn't get the message and they're wondering what's going on. But the, the sort of the really fascinating thing to me about this is that 10 years ago, doing this kind of stuff, like would have been like, probably would have been like, whoa, like a lot of people would have been like, what happened? Yeah. What's going on here? This is crazy. You know, uh, but even even four or five years after that, like by 2016, 2017, we started noticing that people were actually getting quite comfortable with experimentation and 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 um, a really important thing was trust so that they wouldn't be like, oh, you're trying to scam me or you're trying to make me buy mm. a second book now. They'd be like, oh, yeah, what's going on here? I'm sure there must be something that, that if, if they miss, if they didn't get the message, they'll be, oh, I'm yeah. sure there must be something that I'm missing. Um, which yeah. is so, which is so, it was just it's so interesting from our perspective to see this, this evolve as we've sort of like helped create this platform for authors to do the, all this experimentation with and for people to sort of, to, for people in that sort of very staid world of books to become comfortable with that level of experimentation is actually a real change um, in, in the publishing world. That's just been fascinating to see, um, you know, so for example, like, you know, and like, you know, you published a five page book and I paid five bucks for it, you know, <laughs> in, in the very early days, there'd be people who were like, what's going on? But, but it didn't, it, that didn't really take that long. I mean, of course, messaging and stuff like that matter, yeah. making sure that you displayed it, like this is an incomplete book and stuff like that. But um, there was a real kind of appetite out there. There's a real appetite out there for people. Like, I think particularly to sort of like, it gives them a sense of connection. This is my kind of like, I don't know, a kind of emotional kind of take on it, but it gives people a sense of connection to the author and their yeah. project to see things changing and to be kind of allowing the author to have this latitude. Um, anyway, I don't know. I don't have like much more in detail to say about that, but it's just been so interesting watching this experimentation happen and see people sort of be, learn how to consume the experimentation part. Yeah. I think some of the biggest backlash I've had is, is over the progress counter. So, you know, you've got the, like, how much percentage is this book complete? So my, my books for a long time, both of them were like 80, 80 or 90%, because from my perspective, you know, I, I am an independent consultant. I'm going and doing workshops and training courses and conferences on a regular basis. I'm, I'm building my tooling. I'm having different ideas and different approaches that I want to kind of get in the books. So I'm, my books were never finished. Like most software is never finished. It's, it's continuously evolving, as you say. So I, I kind of left the progress counters to like 80 or 90%. And I got so much hate mail, like I paid for this book. When are you going to finish it? I'm like, chill, you know, it's a, it's a work in progress. I'm learning new stuff. You've paid one price and you're getting all of my new understandings and kind of opinions on this topic. Don't worry, the, don't worry about the progress counter. And that didn't go down well. Like, yeah, but when are you going to finish it? And I constantly got this barrage of like when are you going to finish it type questions and people who are quite angry at me 
um, for, for kind of not finishing my book, even though that, you know, at that point in time, there, there was nothing new to add. So the way I got around this was I just set the progress cancer to 100% from when away. I'm still making updates to the books, but I'm just saying they are finished. It's, it's yeah, so that, that's one part of the process that um, I don't think people get yet. Yeah, no, thanks very much for sharing that detail. That's that's really interesting. And for anybody who's who is a lean pub author or who's thinking of doing it, this is the when you do, I mean, I, we just had this sort of very happy like talk about experimentation <laughs> and people loving it. Uh, but but yeah. there there are challenges when you experiment like that as well. And sometimes you you're yeah. gonna have to do some well, we'll we do as much as explaining as we can and we listen to the challenges that authors have and try and change the way we display things and stuff like that and explain them. But yes, that in particular the um the uh the progress counter as it were that says my book is this book is 80 yeah. percent complete in addition to just so people are listening in addition to that to really getting into the lean pub weeds we also have a last updated kind of thing so there's a little date so um uh that 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 can be shown as well um and um we do uh, we do i've i've experienced that before a few times where um for example there's this one really good book uh that i forget the title of right now but that's marked as like 50 percent complete or something like that <laughs> And it's 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 an amazing book, and it's like four hundred pages, right? But but the and it's been fifty percent complete since like twenty sixteen or something like that, right? And like the, the author, I think the author did it as kind of a joke that like she realized this is going to be an eight hundred page book if I finish it. But we'll we'll sell this as part of our newsletter sales and stuff like that. And occasionally people will be like, why would you put a book that's only fifty percent complete that hasn't been <laughs> worked on in six years in your sale? It's like because it's an amazing four hundred page book. Um, yeah, and, yeah. and you can, and we, we, again, we, we show these things on the book landing page. Like it's actually, you can see over oh, 50% complete, but it's 400 pages, you know, scroll down a little bit. You know, we do show, you can get a refund if you don't, if you don't like it and things like that. Uh, but yes, the, the progress thing. And like, you know, people are often very, very curious about, you know, like when, when is the author going to finish it? Um, for example, that's something that where we, we handle a lot of the messaging around that as well. Right. Where someone, because like writing a book is hard all kinds of things can happen in people's lives, right? So they might start a book and they sometimes don't finish the project ever, um, you know, and that's just, you know, it's actually, it's, you know, your responsibility as the author to sort of do what you can to manage that. But it's our responsibility too, to sort of have the messaging in there and saying like, yeah, LeanPub is kind of like a, a unique kind of place to buy buy eBooks from, you know, and it's, you might, you might buy a book early on in a project that doesn't get finished. That's why we have the refund policy that you can mm, get within 60 yeah. days of any purchase and things like that. It's why we're so transparent. You know, if you're buying a 10% book, complete book, you know, there really, there really is no guarantee, but there are a lot of people who, yes, who um, have, don't have much of a sense of humor or, or a kind of let's, let's put, maybe put it like a kind of artist's uh, appreciation for projects. Um, yeah. And, you know, they, they really, there's this idea of like, you know, the book isn't 100% complete. They, they kind of, and I we're saying this kind of in a funny way, but like, it, there is a certain kind of mindset where it's like, well, I paid 100% of the price. I want 100%. I want 100% of the book, you know? Um, and yeah, just sort of, if you're publishing a book in progress, uh, or you have what, you know, we, we've called, we've called for years, a kind of living book, right? One that's always mm. going to be changing, then managing that is just part of the challenge. Yeah. The irony of this, from my perspective, is that my books are uh, almost solely targeted at software developers. And software developers, in the most cases these days, are building software in an agile, iterative fashion, and they're getting features out to their customers and their users, and then adding more features. And of course, if they're building like a subscription service, they, they're charging people like $20 a month, and they're, they're putting out a bunch of features. 
and then like a month later they're adding more features but the 20 dollars a month isn't isn't changing and it, it's like imagine you go to your favorite website or your app like spotify and it's, it's got a progress counter like how much how 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 complete is Spotify, the app? Is right. it like 100%? No, because they're adding new features every every single day. So mm-hmm. that's the irony for me is, you know, my book's targeted at software developers. They're building software that's never complete, but they're, they're kind of having a go at me for writing a book that's not complete either because it's an iterative increment, incremental process. So, yeah. Yeah, and it's I thought it was quite funny. You no, know, it it is kind of funny. I know I, I agree, but it, but it's also like, you know, when, when you're sort of, when like when we're presenting things as like books, you know, there is, there is a notion of, of completeness yeah, and yeah, finality yeah. to that. And it's so like that a is, thing, isn't it? A thing that you buy and it yeah, never changes. You yeah, exactly. And that's, if you want changes. Exactly. And that's kind of the thing that we <laughs> think makes Lean Pub kind of fun, but it is something that also yeah. makes it kind of, kind of like unconventional and confusing yeah. sometimes. It's like a mind shift, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. But, but I think I do, I would say confidently once people, as long as they have the trust. Yeah they'll, they'll get over, they'll, they'll, they'll eventually come to understand what's, what's really going on here. And it's, and it is incumbent upon us as Lean Pub and, you know, our, our authors who are publishing to sort of be communicative and stuff like that and sort of like, you know, develop that trust. The, uh, the last question uh, I always ask on the podcast, if the guest is a Lean Pub author is um, if there was one magical feature we could build for you, or if there's one thing, I mean, in your case, over the years that had you always shaking your fist and shouting at the screen, when you're working on a lean pub book that we could fix for you um can you think of anything that you would ask us to do no so um i mean i i, I jumped on lean pub fairly early and I, I i think i'm pretty much still using your original version of the the markdown uh syntax and it it it's kind of the same thing we discussed already i you know i'm writing a book i just want to get words on a page I want it to look nice, but I don't want to have to control all that stuff. And for me, it kind of does a perfect job. And I get that's not great for everybody. You know, if, if you're into layout and, and you, you want to build something very kind of graphical, then, you know, it's not the, the platform for you. But for, for me, it's been fabulous because I can just have a bunch of text files in source code control in, in Dropbox in the past uh, and write text and, and magic happens and it's it's fabulous so yeah from from my perspective it's it's done everything i've needed and and more oh well thanks very much for that if you if you ever do <laughs> think of anything or if you ever do find yourself shouting at the screen i uh, just please yeah. reach out and let not, me know not at all no no okay. it's been fantastic okay well uh simon thank you very much for uh finally being on on the front matter podcast yeah, thank you. after all these years yeah. and thank you so yeah, much for being a lean pub author you're welcome thank you thanks And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a Lean Pub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.